Reverend Shock is fine. Ladies and gentlemen, we're back here with my good friend, my mentor. I call him Big Papa Doc, uh, Dr. Gerald Durley, internationally recognized civil rights leader who marched with Martin Luther King Jr., uh, born in Wichita, Kansas, grew up in California, earning his doctorate in urban education and psychology uh, from the University of Massachusetts and his master's de- uh, uh, got his master's of divinity degree at, uh, from Howard University, an awesome HBCU. Uh, Dr. Durley recently retired as pastor of Providence uh, Missionary Baptist Church and now is the author of his first book, I Am Amazed, Reflections of an Awe-Inspired Life. And we're going to be talking about everything from Trump to climate change to what should we do now. And I'm just honored to have you back. How are you? I am doing absolutely wonderful, uh, Rev, it's a, it's a great time, a great period to be alive. It's an exciting time, and I'm doing fine, and it's just such an honor to be speaking with you and your vast, very progressive listening audience. They are very progressive, and they are very vast. That is true. Thank you for the acknowledgement. Well, we've got a lot to talk about. Now, one of the things that I, I, I guess I should lead with is you sent, uh, you sent me or sent out a, a letter um to a uh, call not in my lifetime and i would like for you to kind of uh, uh walk us through what this letter represents and who it was for um and 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 kind of set the tone for us on 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 the obama administration the last eight years and and what it's meant not just historically but also what it means to uh the future of our children well thank you very much uh uh, that particular a man out of Washington, D.C., out of New York City, is doing a book, and he's asked about 20 people from across the country to give a 750-word essay as to their reflection upon what President Barack Obama has meant uh, as the President of the United States, what all his programs will be, and how will it impact the future. So I was one of those people that was asked to to submit this uh, small essay, and and I entitled it, Not in My Lifetime. Now, the reason that I entitled it that uh, particular uh, name is because I never thought in my lifetime that I would see so many things that have changed and yet remain the same. Mm -hmm. Generally, when you see a change, you would hope that it would be a change that would be sustained. Uh, But in this particular instance, I've never thought in my lifetime uh, joining the movement there in 1959 and 60 in Nashville, Tennessee. We were, I never thought in my lifetime that we would see an, a president of African-American descent. I never thought mm-hmm. that I would see that. But mm-hmm. uh, we've seen that. I never thought when we fought for busing riding uh, on the front of the uh, white line on the bus, I never thought that we'd see even the voting and the housing and so many other uh, uh, laws that were in, on the books against minorities, and particularly African Americans. So I never thought in my lifetime I would see that. But I have seen that happen in my lifetime. I've seen attitudes change. I've seen school desegregation. I've seen voting. I've even seen uh, voting rights uh, be implemented. I've seen uh, educational systems be desegregated. I've seen the breakdown in redlining of housing. I've seen mm. minority-owned businesses possible. So I would say not in my lifetime. And then over the last several years, and in fact, I'll say the last eight years, the impact of what uh, President Obama has done in the face of all type of opposition, I never thought that I would see in my lifetime this man standing sometimes all alone against a powerful uh, legislative body in Washington. 
but I saw it in my lifetime. But then I never thought I would see in my lifetime the reversal of so many progressive actions that have occurred that have benefited whites and the women and other minorities. Mm-hmm. And so I never thought in my lifetime I would see that. So I think in all of our uh, journeys uh, here, we look at what happens during our lifetime, and sometimes you just cannot believe it. And the kind of uh, divisive attitude that's going on now, I never thought in my lifetime I would see it at such a at such a raging rate, uh, Rev Shock. So this is was the kind of the background of the uh, of the uh, little article there, not in my lifetime. And I'm still saying that every day when I see certain appointments being made. I said I never thought in my lifetime I would see this kind this kind of ugliness being uh, its head being raised again. Wow. Well, let me ask you this. Where were you? We, we all remember where we were when, when we saw Barack Obama be, uh, become uh, the first uh, uh, black president of the United States of America. Where were you when um, Donald Trump uh, became uh, the, the president uh, of the United States? What was your thoughts on uh, that uh, huge, huge uh, turnout? Uh, of, of uh, voters. I, I, I was at the same place on both times that Barack Obama was elected. I was in the same place when, when I saw the results coming in on November the 8th. Uh, I was at home with my wife, and I was just sitting there reflecting because we had done so much work in so many places all over the country trying to talk about uh, who would be the most appropriate person at this time that would sustain the kind of meaningful programs that have been implemented by uh, Barack Obama. And as I saw the results coming in, and I waited, as others did across the country, between five or six states that we thought were pivotal, and mm-hmm. then it shifted. Now, I went from first, I began to understand that America is still America, and the fears predicated upon ignorance were very, they were just preponderant. It wasn't about the poor uh, coal miners in West Virginia, but these were, when you look at the numbers, many educated white women that did not really vote for Hillary Clinton, uh, did, did, did not vote for Hillary Clinton. So Donald Trump only had one vote, but America voted, and when America voted, they voted for change. Now, I'm not saying everybody that voted was a racist. I'm not that uh, naive, but I do believe that fear and ignorance took hold of a great nation and took it captive, and the results, uh, uh, the, the results ended up in uh, us employing an inexperienced individual who has the, the tendencies uh, to to negate so many positive things, and, and, and people as well. So I was sitting at home watching that, but then I took a second look at it. I really looked at it the second time after I looked at it, and I began to understand in a very broad way, which governs my actions now, is that in a way it's, it's, it's really kind of good. And I've been talking to the African-American community many minorities and so some low-income areas here in Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi, that this could be a very interesting time with Donald Trump being elected president because it forces, and particularly the African-American population, it forces us to do what we used to do for ourselves. Whenever our backs were against the wall and racism was at its height and crosses were burning and schools were being closed and lynchings were occurring, we had to do for ourselves. We did not ask anybody what were they going to do for nor to us. Mm. So it's, it's having a different kind of effect. I've talked to so many groups to say now 
if if this is cut back, if that's cut back, we built 110 historically black colleges and universities. We had insurance companies and we had banks. Now, I'm not talking about going back to a desegregation pattern, but I'm saying at one time or another, when you see this kind of blatant uh, opposition to just progressive programs, it forces one to survive. I recognize that the Latino community, they're coming together in a very strong way. The Jewish community, with the anti-Semitic remarks, even the women are beginning to come together and coalesce because of the kind of attitude that has been portrayed by this uh, current administration leader. Uh, the immigrants, and particularly the Muslim community. So I'm saying to the African-American community that this could be a golden Kairos moment where we begin to reflect on this kind of... Uh, profound, uh, almost uh, over uh, opposition, racism to a certain degree. And I think that what we have to do now is say, fine, let's do not spend all of our time condemning this man, nor his administration, nor his appointed cabinet members, but let's begin to see what is it that now we can do for ourselves. The other day a man called me on the radio and said, suppose he cuts off all of the, cuts off welfare and cuts out the EBT or the, the food stamps. I said, then learn to grow a garden. We've got to now go back to that. And then when we get that strength back, then reach out across lines, again, to, as we did during the Civil Rights Movement, when we got our bearing straight and knew that we wanted civil and human and rights, then we began to reach out to uh, people of, a, of, of different faiths and of different cultures and of different uh, religious uh, persuasions. And I think that that's where it is now. So Donald Trump is doing now what Trayvon Martin couldn't do, the police brutality couldn't do, because we marched for a few months, and then here it was, we were right back to where it is. I think now this is a wonderful wake-up call, not from an enemy. I don't see this uh, administration as an enemy to us. I think it is something that will encourage us to become better, better Americans, because then we could then begin to pursue the American dream, which was to build and work for yourself in, in, in conjunction with those around you. That's a long answer, I'm sure. No, it's a phenomenal answer is what it is, that's for sure. Um, when I first talked to you about this, you said, uh, you said, you, you said, I'm going to ask you two questions. Do you remember that? Yeah, uh, that, that was prompted. I was on, on a radio show, and so many African Americans were calling me and saying, I'm really depressed. What happened? We voted in record numbers, and how did it go wrong? What will happen to us? What are we going to do? And that was a certain sense of, uh, I think, fear, a certain sense of uh, depression, de disappointment, frustration, and most of all, a confused state as to what will happen. And I, asked, I said, let me, after the break, I want to ask all of you in the radio listening audience two questions. And this was a predominantly black uh, radio station that I was speaking on that day. I said, first question, are you still black? Second, are you still living in America? <laughs> and if you're still black living in America, why are you shocked at the outcome of this? You were told that the election was rigged. You just were not told who it was rigged for. So <laughs> don't be angry. Don't go out and curse somebody out. Take the negativism. Turn it into a positivism. Get, go down inside of yourself and become as strong as you can. Then reach out to others and let's make this nation what it's supposed to be, a land of the free and home of the brave. But right now... We're not free, and we're certainly not brave the way, the way I'm listening to you speaking. So I said, mm. ask that question. And so don't take it as a negative. Let's turn this into a positive point of action. You know, you have been uh, 
an advocate of civil rights. Uh, I, you know, I would argue and say just out of the womb. But you know, technically, let's just go back a little bit and and and, and look at what uh, what forged uh, a, a Reverend Doctor uh, uh, Gerald Durley. What what made you so strong uh, and so effective in your work? Now, your mom was 16 and, uh, and, and your father was 19 right. uh, when, you, when you came around. Is that right? That's right. You were a basketball player uh, in, your, in your early years, and um, uh, you were raised in a, in a, in a prejudiced uh, area uh, of, of Wichita, Kansas. I remember you telling me a story about, um, uh, I think it was buying a hat. Well, basically, uh, you, you understand we're all – part and parcel of our background and our growing up. And at some mm-hmm. point in all of our lives, something, someone, a certain and it brings it all down to what it is that I've got to do. What is the purpose of my life? Mm-hmm. Now, as you know, I was born there in Wichita, Kansas, of course, but I grew up in California. I picked all of the cotton cut to, to dug, uh, the potatoes that were dug and the, the tomatoes. I picked peaches right there in Bakersfield, California. I went to the Kern County High Schools, and, of course, in those days, most of when we would go down there in Bakersfield, under the big Bakersfield Inn, and catch the buses at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning and go out and chop cotton, pick cotton, cut grapes, uh, all down through there. And most of the people on the bus, a few of us were, were, were of course, black. And I, I was like 14, 15, 16. Many of them were uh, Latinos, Mexican-Americans, as we called it at that time. And they were there, and I... And I said, one of these days, I'm not going to be in this field. So we were out here picking all this cotton. So I could see that, but we were all just poor living there on Cottonwood Road in Bakersfield. My father had a little church there. And so then we moved to Sacramento, California. So I had that opportunity to be there in California. So I didn't see what we call blatant racism. I saw poverty, but we didn't see poverty. We were just poor. And we laughed. We had fun. We went to church. Uh, in, in, the, in that area of Bakersfield and, of course, in Sacramento. Then we moved to Denver, Colorado, and again uh, going to a school that was uh, 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 Asian and, and uh, many of the Mexican-Americans that were there and also uh, blacks. So I didn't see the kind of racism, even though we were living in segregated neighborhoods, but they weren't as blatant as in some other parts of America, including New York City. But mm-hmm. when I got to Nashville, Tennessee to play basketball, I went down there and I was blatantly discriminated against when I went into a place to buy a cap. And I went in there, and here I was, uh, six feet five, a young 18-year-old, all-city, all-state basketball player from Denver, Colorado. Had a nickname, uh, Rev. Uh, they called, you know, my name was Durley. So I, I called myself the Double D. And the Double D stood for the Double Defensive Delectable Darling Dynamic Dangerous Devastating D from Denver. That was my <laughs> nickname. And we laughed about it. And I enjoyed going down there because it was a very powerful team. I went down there the same year, a young lady named Wilma Rudolph. That was in 1960, 56 years ago. Ralph Boston had just broken Jesse Owens' record. The women's track team had just won five gold medals in Rome. And so I was so excited to go into Nashville, Tennessee, the South, for the first time. And having gone there, I went down to buy a cap. And uh, when I went down to buy the cap, I went in the store and tried it on, but it was too small. And so I was getting ready to put it back on the rack, and the lady grabbed the hat and said, no, you've got to pay $6.50 for that hat. I said, well, it doesn't fit. She said, that'll be $6.50. So I didn't think she could hear, 
1960, for a six-foot-five black man to bend over a white woman in downtown Nashville and say, can you hear me, ma'am, that's lynching talk. So they came around me, and the manager came around me. And today, said, this day is actually lynching talk. That, today is lynching talk, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a different form of lynching. They wear black robes. Yeah, and, right. Uh, <laughs> nice. So, yeah. So, 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 so I said no. So the man took the cat and looked at me and said, come in, nigga. Let me tell you one thing. Who's going to fire this hat after it's been on your woolly head? He took the money out of my pocket, threw, threw me out the door, and threw the hat uh, after me. And they were laughing and talking. And I walked back from downtown Nashville back to Tennessee State. But two or three days later, I met a group of civil rights people uh, at Fisk University, and they started talking about going downtown and fighting these kinds of atrocities from a racial perspective. Then we were riding segregated buses in terms of behind the white line, uh, Greyhound and uh, sitting behind the white line. And I noticed when I first got there that there were certain drinking fountains that we could not drink out of. Uh, me being from Colorado, having grown up in California, I did not pay that much attention because my goals were to play basketball and get out of there. But all of these things uh, started to impact me. And next, I was a major part of an effort, uh, sit-in movements, going downtown, organizing on campus. And then, of course, my senior year, I was a foot soldier out there at the March on Washington in 1963. All of these things are a part of all of the listeners' audiences. Everything adds up to a pregnant moment in your life when something is birthed. And that birth should be some purpose to give you a reason to live, a reason to strive, a reason to get up in the morning. And when I came back from the March on Washington, April the, August the 28th, 1963, I was elected president of student government and out there civil rights. And then on November 22nd, only a few months later, John F. Kennedy was killed. And that put another whole layer of which, which direction do we go now? The man who had helped us with the march and all of that uh, came into play. So uh, those were part and parcels of what it was uh, adding up uh, the, the pieces that would, would eventually make who I would be from civil rights, from human rights, to stand up for rights for, for all people. And then, of course, uh, I was just kind of fed up with America and was invited by a man named Sergeant Shriver, John Kennedy's brother-in-law, to leave America and move to Nigeria mm -hmm. in, in what they call the first Peace Corps program ever put together, the first. And so I moved to Nigeria in 64. And uh, so these are the kinds of things. And now in my lifetime, I'm seeing some of the same kinds of attitudes reemerge. I emerge uh, on the scene. I do find comfort in seeing, even when I'm out there sometimes with the Black Lives Matter people, that there are many people, uh, young people in particular, who are of, of so many racial backgrounds because they're talking about justice and talking about equality that goes beyond some of the uh, ideas that those who are in power are trying to uh, articulate. Uh, your book, your biography is absolutely amazing. Well, and, thank and, you. And it's, and it's called it's it's called I am amazed. Uh, Reflection yes. on our inspired life. Um, there, and and you know, ladies and gentlemen, when you read this book, you will be amazed because you have to understand uh, uh, individually and collectively the amount of strength and temerity and tenacity that we have. Uh, as a people, they say what won't kill you will only make you stronger, and that is really your overall message uh, that that not only you are giving today, but really represents your entire life. 
Yes, and and and, and you know what? Here's what's interesting. Uh, all around the country, wherever I am, and we're doing the book signing. I am amazed. I have to honestly say, and I generally and I sign each one, and I'm saying, remember this: your life too is amazing. In the African American community and other communities as well, particularly with people that have been under all types of oppression, your life is amazing that you're still surviving. But you're so busy surviving, you never stop to see all of the amazing things that are really happening. Mm-hmm. There are always positive things happening in our lives, but we're so over inundated with negativity that we don't see the positive side of life. That's why when I was 40-something years old uh, and I had gone to you know undergraduate school at Tennessee State, a master's from Illinois, a doctorate degree in psychology from University of Massachusetts, at 40, about 39, 40 years old, I went back to Howard, went to Howard, not back, and got another master's degree in, in divinity so that I could take the three degrees in psychology and understand that we're body, mind, and spirit because your mind can fool you, your mind can hold you back, your thoughts can destroy you, but if they're founded upon a spiritual foundation and they work together, you can survive and thrive, and that is amazing. But we don't have time to say, wow, I'm amazed that I made it all the way downtown in traffic and, and I didn't tear up my car. I'm amazed that my daughter and, and I, we fell out, and now we're back together. I'm amazed that the doctor said that I have cancer and wouldn't live a year, and this is the 19th year as a survivor. These are amazing moments in all of our lives, and every now and then, uh, Rev, I think we need to stop and say, I'm amazed that at, at where I've come and the powers that have enabled me to see another day when everything seemed so bleak and the mountains were so high and, and the valleys so low and the rivers so wide and the depression just so deep and the bills uh, almost unpayable, but you made it. You're still standing, and you ought to stop and say, I'm amazed. I mm. am simply amazed because in many cases you didn't do it on your own. All of your experiences added up to what it is that allowed you to not only face your challenge but to overcome the challenge. And when you overcome any challenge in life, that's amazing. I want to talk about some of the things that you wrote about in the book, uh, some of the stories that you that, that that you have shared in the book and that you have shared with me. Um, you, you, the, the lesson that you learned from from your mother having uh, 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 having you rub a, a, a take a page uh, from the J.C. Penney catalog. Yep. Uh, yep. Talk to it. Remember that story. Tell us that, that story. Was in, that, we were living in St. Louis, Missouri at the time. We lived at 2626 A Madison Street, which is right downtown, and we lived upstairs over the, uh, the Dokes family. They were renting to us. It was my, it was three of us, three children, my mother and father. We had a rollaway bed. And I think sometimes when you come through the real poverty areas, it really allows you to appreciate where you are today. We had a rollaway bed, and Leander and I, we slept. Uh, on one end of the bed, my little sister, she slept on the other end until she got too tall. Then we moved. She graduated to sleeping on the couch. What that did, we received uh, what they called uh, powdered USDA milk, powdered milk and powdered eggs. And to this day, don't give me powdered milk or don't give me peanut butter because they bring that peanut butter by and I'd have to stir the top of it with that grease so that we could eat it. So peanut butter and and, uh, and, uh, and and grits and things like that. I said, oh no, never again. Uh, will I? Will I? Because it would choke me. We had an outdoor toilet, and you have to go down the steps in St. Louis where it was ice cold. We go down the steps to this outdoor toilet, and before we go down, 
we had this big, it, it, it really wasn't pennies, it was Sears. It might have been I, Sears or pennies, it was a big catalog. And uh, she'd just take out one page and she'd take it and ball it up and, and just rub it, rub it, rub it so that it wouldn't scratch us. And that's what we use for the toilet table when we go down there. And she'd stand at the top of those steps and we'd go down and uh, she'd have a light up there, a little flashlight, and then we'd go down. And I think about that now, how life has really changed when kids are screaming about uh, they've got houses with two or three bathrooms. And I don't begrudge that. I think that's, I believe in progress. But I think those outdoor toilets and that, that peanut butter and that powdered milk is giving me, I'm amazed that I can still remember that, but it gives me strength to carry on. So stories like that are so important. Now, the one that story that stands out when I would go to Wichita, Kansas, to be with my grandmother, she lived in what we call a shotgun house. A shotgun house is basically three rooms. You look in the front door where her bedroom was, then there was a little family area, and then there was a kitchen. You could look from the front door straight out through the back, and uh, she would always keep a little pail with a little water in it, and that was her little stool that she would uh, relieve herself, and she would always spit in there because she she um, dipped snuff. And mm-hmm. it, to me, it was the nastiest thing in there, but somebody had to empty it. And she would always say, you're my oldest grandson. You empty that pail. And one day I was just had a little attitude, as we all get, and I accidentally kicked it over there on that linoleum floor. And that, all of that stuff that she had in that, uh, in that we call it a slop jar. That was a real name for it, a slop jar. Mm-hmm. And I learned a great lesson from there. She said, boy, don't be so nice and nasty. And remember this, whenever you make a mess, clean it up. And I'm still using that as a, as a, as a, as kind of a, a pathway to what I want to do. When I make a mess, take time to clean it up. I kicked over the jar, not only put the, the jar back up, but clean it up and leave it, leave it nice and clean. And those are the kinds of lessons that are amazing that we do, but we just don't remember how they apply to our day-to-day lives of survival mm-hmm. in 2016. Speaking to our young people, um, um, Doc particularly those that, that uh, um, have uh, the ability or the aspiration, if not the ability, to uh, uh, increase their learning, to go to college. You went through a lot uh, during your time uh, in college and learned lots of lessons. In fact, <clears throat> and uh, I want to make sure this is true, was it true that you were labeled uh, EMR, well, you had a stuttering problem? Well, what happened, uh, as I said, I was born, my mother was 16. We were living in St. Louis at the time, and uh, when I went to school, I was there, and I and I I, 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 I stuttered a lot. Mm. So when I'm talking to a lot of young people, I I stuttered unbelievably poor, uh, and uh, I stuttered so much they they called my mother in and said, "Mrs. Durley, your son has a uh, a language deficiency, and I think we're going to keep him back in the kindergarten for one more year to see if we can work on his stuttering." And I and it that only increased my stuttering, and they put my brother Leander, who lives out there in California now. He uh, was in the same room with me, and they always labeled me as Mrs. Durley's slow learner. That, and they said he he might make it out of high school, maybe out of junior high school, maybe high school, but he stuttered a lot. And I began to 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 stutter and respond to the box that they had placed me in. And I tell young people all the time, don't let people put you in boxes, because if they put you in a box and you believe that box, then they can leave you alone and you'll keep yourself in that box. Mm. In the fourth grade, a lady by the name of Mrs. Aslan came up to me, and she said, Jerry, come here. Come here. Now, the teacher was stuttering who asked me to come 
to speak with her. She said, I want you, 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 you to speak to my, my, my class. And I knew that I couldn't speak to her class because I stuttered and she stuttered worse than I. But I went to the class and I got up and got ready to speak. And all of the children in the class laughed at me. And I couldn't get a word out. But then I said something like, all of y'all shut up or kiss my butt. And, man, I didn't stutter. And Mrs. Aslan ran up to me and hugged me. She said, see, you didn't stutter. Now, that was the fourth grade. Uh, at the end of the fourth grade, they gave me a little test, and they skipped me from the fourth to the sixth grade. That I really wasn't mentally retarded, educationally mentally retarded. I did have a stuttering problem. But isn't it interesting now, over, over 60 years ago now, all of those people who put me in a box, and to some extent I put myself in a box, I, I, they're all dead and gone, and I make my living all over the world speaking without stuttering. So I tell young people, don't allow people to put you in a box and tell you you can't make it because your daddy went to jail, your mother uh, maybe uh, uh, is, is, is a prostitute, or all of these kinds of things, or mm -hmm. you come from a poor background, or your grandfather never did this, or your parents are not that, or you don't live in a house like the people on the other side of town. These are merely uh, situations in your life to make you stronger. So now I look back on it now, and I'm so thankful that uh, that I did not allow that box to become my coffin. <laughs> I like that. that I like that. I like that. my coffin, and, and, the, and the world buried me. So now <laughs> nice. all nice. young people, don't let that box, that, and don't let your peers put you in a box either. Young lady, you went through some don't, stuff with your when, uh, with the fraternity too when you were in college. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that was in Denver where they when I first moved to Denver it was a little high school group, and they invited me and a couple of my buddies to come to. They were going to interview me, but I didn't have the kind of clothes, and they laughed at me and said, "Oh, that's that preacher's kid. Look at him. look at the dirty jeans he's wearing." Now I'd be in style today with raggedy jeans, but then <laughs> I'd be right in style. They weren't they were custom made too from where, and uh, but I. They la and they they did what they call they blackball me from being in that little fraternity of, of guys that played basketball in high school, and and I didn't really understand. It hurt me, but two guys on that team said, "If Jerry can't get in, we don't want to be in it." And, mm. and we left that little place that Sunday afternoon, and I thought about that. And sometimes when you feel uh, uh, ineffective, when you feel that the you're not uh, as as popular with your friends, particularly young people, uh, you can you can go into your self-esteem can be, get so low. I remember my senior year in high school, uh, I was all city basketball, all uh, state, and I wanted to go to the prom, but I wanted to go not as that preacher's kid with the raggedy clothes or just the old same old jeans, same old shirt. So I saved up and worked, and some people at my dad's church gave me some money, and I bought a brand-new suit. That suit cost $39. And, I mean, it was expensive, $39. I bought a green suit, and I bought some nice brown shoes, and I wore some red socks, had a black handkerchief on. I didn't realize it was multicolored. I just knew it was all new. <laughs> and when I got to the prom, the young ladies laughed at me and called me a Christmas tree. And I thought that that was popular because I like Christmas trees. So I said, thank you. <laughs> a friend of mine came over and said, Double D, you look like a clown with all those colors, man. And I, I, my, I, was, I felt like I was two inches tall. I went up and sat in the bleachers, and I was so down. And I flipped back. That was my senior year. And I flipped back almost to when I was in the kindergarten, and the stuttering started coming in my, mm. in my chest. 
Now, I use that story as a learning Mm -hmm. point because now I can buy anything I want to wear because now I know that clothes don't make me. It's what's on the inside of me that make me. So Mm -hmm. now I make the clothes. The clothes don't make me. And so I tell young people, don't allow those external variables and those circumstances in your life, be that your brother, your sister, your mother, your uncle, your peer group, don't allow them to define you. You define yourself. And you will be all right. I love that. Last last piece uh, for uh, moving forward in the, as we approach this new year. Um, a lot of people uh, have on both sides have lost their true north, their sense of direction, their sense of faith. And I remember there was a point uh, when you rejected uh, uh, your religion at one point uh, in your life. Uh, which is ironic because you became one of the most prolific ministers of our time. I think there is there is something now, I believe, that's very important in all of our lives. I call it the wilderness, the mm. wilderness. And I call it now the wilderness experience. America does not allow us to effectively deal with the wilderness, the wilderness being those moments in our lives where we're not certain as to what it is, we are even doing what it is we should do. Uh, because you finish junior high school, they say, what high school are you going to? You finish high school, what college are you going to? You finish college, uh, what job are you going to get? You get married, when are you going to have a baby? You get the baby, what job are you going to get? When are you going to change jobs? What neighborhood? And you never get a chance just to stop in the wilderness. And when you're in the wilderness, you get connected to a God, to a deity, to a force that's greater than you. We are not all, we are uh, finite beings, but every now and then we have to go to infinity, to something that is greater than ourselves. And so uh, in the wilderness and all the way through every great religion, people have gone through the wilderness to reach a point where they can be productive and find out what is the purpose in his or her life. And so, yes, I went through a period, where is God? What is God doing? seems like uh, the system White folks, black folks, everybody is coming in, uh, uh, destroying what it is that I think that I want to do. And mm-hmm. there's no moments like that you need to just, one needs to, you just, to just stop and say, wait a minute, I am not the worst creature on earth, and just stop and get connected to something greater than you. Uh, and, and now different religions call it them. Some call it Jehovah Jireh. Some call it El Shaddai. Some call it Allah. Some call it Buddha. Some call it Shikaraka. Some call it Jesus Christ, but find that I happened to choose the Christian faith because I grew up in that, but I left it for a while and I had to come back. But, for, but I can respect all faith because it allows you to not only recognize when you're in the wilderness, but when you're in the wilderness, just stop. We go back to the Old Testament stories where the children of Israel were in the wilderness, but they were fed by God. So now I live on the principles, uh, Reverend Shah, of two things, and they're both a T, double T. I, whatever situation I'm in, I wouldn't care what it is when I'm broke. They diagnosed me with colon cancer. Guess what I did? I thank God, right? I thank, I thank. I thank the force greater than me. I call it God. I call him God. So I thank. That's the first T. And the second T, after I thank God, then I do something that we've forgotten how to. I trust God. I thank mm. and I trust. And when you can thank forever, you, you, your boyfriend just left you, your girlfriend quit, your car was just wrecked. Somebody just stole something. 
Say, God, I thank you for this situation because it's something in here for me to grow, and I'm going to trust that you'll show me. So when you start thanking and trusting, all of a sudden there's a new sense of something strange that will change your life. And this is a strange word. Please forgive me, but I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. Please let me say it. You will receive peace. Peace. Oh, wow, the P word. Okay. P word. P word, (laughs) peace. Wow. And that's all. You think about it. That's all that any of us want on this phone call today, on this program today. You go to school to make money, to get a house, to get clothes, to meet friends, so you have peace. That's all we want. And somewhere I read in the Old Testament, God said, I will give you the peace that surpasses all understanding, and the peace I give you will control two things, how you think and how you feel. So today, if you're not feeling well nor thinking well, that means you're not at peace. And if you're not at peace, then you're rejecting the great peace giver. So stop in the wilderness experience when you don't know what to do, where to go, who to talk to, and say, let me just be still and know and feel that power and then say thank you. And then when you thank, let me trust that you'll see me through. You'll get a good night's sleep. You don't need to take all those those uppers and downers and all of the other things that they've got on TV uh, selling you because what I've seen, everything that they put on TV now that, that helps you go get up in the morning or go to sleep or lose weight or gain weight, it's got a side effect. And usually the side effects are worse than than what you're trying yeah. to cure. So why not just say, I receive your peace and go on about your business? Wow. You know, it's, thank you for that because I needed that lesson. I know it's for the people, but I needed it too. Thank you, Rev, for that. I appreciate you. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, Reverend Dr. Gerald Durley, uh, as I say, I call him Big Papa, Big Papa Doc. Uh, he, he is a staple and a force in my life, and uh, I'm just blessed and honored. I'm in awe of the amazing life that I have to be able to have him in my life. I just want to thank you and respect you and, and, and honor you in this moment. Thank you, my friend. And I, I want to say, yeah, that, that I'm amazed. It's on Amazon, too. If anybody wanted to pick it up, it's on Amazon. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. All right, Doc. And as a parting word, as you're going into the season of Advent or the season, uh, whatever it might be, it might be Hanukkah, whatever you're going in through, realize that that you have a purpose. It's already outlined. You might not know it. You might not see it. You might be so overburdened and overwhelmed with just life itself. But as you finish listening to these few little words from this humble person, just 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 say this. It is all right. There is a God that sits high, that looks low, regardless of your faith, and know that you will come through this. Don't run out at this Yuletide season and buy things that you can't afford to give to people that don't even like you. Just, just, do, just allow yourself to feel one word, and this is the reason for this whole season, the peace that God gives you. Go in peace. Go in joy. Accept his love, and then give that love that you receive. And see when all those worries, all those schizophrenic, psychological schizophrenic moments begin to diminish, and you'll feel what you really need. And then you'll know who you are because you know whose you are, and you'll feel his presence and the love of God in your life. And then share it. Share it. And you'll be all right. Enjoy these holidays. We love you and appreciate you, Doc. Love you too, Doc. All right. We'll see you soon. Bye now.